Well, this morning we're going to continue our, serv- our um, sermon series called A Change of Mind. A Change of Mind. And what we're focusing on through this series is becoming a follower of Jesus requires us to change our mind concerning the standards and guidelines that govern our lives. We're changing our mind the way we think about God. So if when you were not following Jesus, you weren't thinking about God, you weren't thinking about his world, you were basing your life decisions and living your life in such a way that just seemed kind of best to you. Whatever you kind of felt like you should do, whatever suited your desires, whatever suited your goals and your ideologies of the world, however you viewed the world, you made decisions accordingly. Accordingly. But when you came to Jesus, you changed your mind first about God. You changed your mind from rebelling against Him. You changed your mind from rejecting Him. You changed your mind from ignoring Him. And you began to follow God. Maybe even some of you thought that He didn't exist. But then you've come to believe that He does exist, so you've changed your mind. Maybe some of you thought that the Bible was for another day, for another time. But then you changed your mind and you said, well, the Bible is for today. It's for now. So you've changed your mind. And as you began to grow as a Christian, as you began to move forward in your understanding of God and His Word, you continue to change your mind. You continue to be more formed into the image of Jesus. You began to view the world not only through your own mind, not only through your own ideas, but through the lens of the scriptures. And you started to allow the Bible to form what you believe to be true, what you believe to be error. You started allowing the Bible to control what you thought to be appropriate or inappropriate or right or wrong. You began to really change your mind. And why we're talking so much about this idea of changing a mind is because when you come to changing your mind, the biblical word for that all throughout the Bible is the word repentance. Because that's what repentance means. It means to change the mind. So when John the Baptist showed up on the scene and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, change your mind because the kingdom of God is showing up. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell and the church was birthed and Peter preached that magnificent sermon recorded in Acts chapters 2 and 3, that whole whole series, that whole um, story, the response to that original message from Peter was, what do we do? And then Peter told, instructed them to repent and follow Jesus. So this idea of repentance is key throughout the scriptures. This idea of a change of our mind is key throughout the scriptures. And so what I want to focus on today is helping you perhaps to change your mind concerning an issue that I think has become quite convoluted and a little bit or maybe even a lot confusing. You know, words have meaning, and then words have the way we use them sometimes. Or you might have certain words and certain things that you say in your home that you and your family know what you mean, but outside maybe they don't. And so words get very confusing, right? And somebody can take some good words or a good phrase or a good sentence that no one would argue is a bad sentence. So when we say God loves you, that's a true statement. That is a good statement. That's a good phrase, a good combination of words. God loves you. We even could 
change that a little bit and say, God loves everyone. Yes, that's, that, that's true. That's true. God loves everyone. So if you took that statement and said, God loves everyone, or God loves you, how do we use that phrase? It's a true phrase. It's a good phrase. It's a real phrase. It's in the Bible. It's everywhere. It's good to say. It's good to hear. But when I take that phrase, that sentence, and I come to you, maybe you're breaking one of God's commands. Maybe you're living a way that is outside of the bounds of Scripture. And I say to you, it's okay, God loves you. I've just kind of misused this really good phrase, right? Because you'll notice I say, well, it's okay, God loves you. God loves everyone. And that phrase, God loves everyone, is now being used to kind of excuse sin and to call people to remain in their sinful state. You live a certain lifestyle, you have a certain mindset, you have some certain activities, you have some certain things going on in your mind and your heart that the Bible calls sinful, and you confess those to someone, you say, I really need to work on this, and somebody goes, that's okay, God loves everyone. God, God loves everyone. So you don't have to change. No, 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 the Bible is quite opposite. No, God loves everyone, therefore, repent. Therefore, when we have things in our life that are outside of the biblical bounds, we have to change our mind about them. Now, something happens to us sometimes when you and I start to feel that kind of weight on us, right? kind of that weight on us when we know that we've done something wrong, <laughs> when we know that maybe something going on internally within our own hearts, maybe a disposition, maybe a bend towards something, um, maybe kind of something that, that we've always been, maybe we've always been just an angry person, or we've always been maybe a, a person that says inappropriate things, or we've always been a person that is somewhat selfish, or we've always been a person that's so much prideful, or, you know, we have all these kind of things going on inside of us, but when we start to notice, and we're reading our scriptures, and we're saying, whoa, some things about me are outside of the biblical bounds. Some things about me are wrong. And then we feel that weight. Now that weight needs to be identified because it's not all the same. Sometimes you will feel guilt. Sometimes you will feel shame. And where we want to move and where we want to think, as far as the Scriptures go, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, okay, you are to feel guilt when necessary, but never shame. Never shame. But what has happened in our culture today, because we take words and we use them in ways that maybe they were never intended to be used, or we use words to try to push an agenda, what we're doing today in our culture is we're calling shame guilt and then removing it. Because guilt is a good thing, shame is a bad thing, so let's call all conviction shame and therefore never tell anybody that they're wrong. Because we agree that I don't want to come to you and shame you. I'm not here to preach a sermon that shames you. I'm not here to say shame on you for being that way. I don't want you to have that weight of shame on your life. 
But if there's something going on in your world or something going on in you, something about your life that is outside of the scriptural bounds, I do anticipate and pray and desire that the Holy Spirit convict you of your sin and for you to accept your guilt and for you to change your mind. But I don't want you to feel shame. And I'll explain why this morning. Why this is so different. Because in a culture that agrees that shame is bad, we then take shame, place it on guilt, and we don't want anybody to feel guilty. So we say, God loves everyone. Well, does God love everyone? Yes. But that doesn't mean you're not guilty. That doesn't mean I'm not guilty. So let's dive in. The main point of this morning's message is this. The sense of guilt, absent of shame, enables us to change our mind without losing our value. So, so that, that's, that's my intent. That's what I want to pound into your mind for the next few minutes. Now, as I said, my mother-in-law is here. I have to keep the sermon to 30 minutes because I promised to take her to lunch. And her pastor preaches about 30 minutes. And I got her pastor is Pastor Rick Harvey. I got to kind of live up to the standard this morning. I'll try my best. The sense of shame and guilt, absence of shame, enables us to change our mind without losing our value. That's what, because there's a difference between sh- guilt and shame. The good guilt, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, turn your, in your Bibles there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, we're going to look at the good of guilt described as godly grief. Okay? The goodness of guilt described as godly grief. Now in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8, we read this. Follow along in your Bibles. Please, if you need a Bible, there's a couple in the back. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For even if I made you grieve, grieve in, with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that in the letter grieved you though only for a while. Now let's stop for a second because I need to explain this. What he means in that first phrase in my previous letter, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or um, 1 Corinthians, okay? So you have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written by Paul, sent to the church in Corinth, and basically he told them they were doing most things wrong. (laughs) 1 Corinthians lays out all kinds of craziness going on in the church. I mean stuff that you'd be like, what? is going on. Christians are doing that. They call themselves Christians and they're doing that. Yes. All sorts of things. One, One of them, can you imagine? I mean, this is how bad it was. It was as though people gathered together in a space like this, most likely a home, most likely. A home, and it was probably a group of five to 25 folks. You know, they would gather in worship and then They wouldn't go watch a ball game or go to the beach or go to the mountains or enjoy a nice lunch. No, they would go to another temple and participate in all sorts of sexual inappropriateness in worship of another god. That would be their night service. And Paul says, "Mm -mm. no, no, there's no room for that. And all sorts of other things going on in Corinth that the church was participating in because they had believed in a part of Gnosticism which believes that what I do with my body doesn't matter, only what I do with my soul. So I worship God with my soul 
and I celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with my soul and my spirit, but then with my body, I go through all of these, all of these things. Now, we've kind, we kind of do the same thing in, in, in today's world. We call that the sacred-secular split, right? Well, I'll use those words at work, but I'll never say that at church. I'll wear that out on a Friday night, but I won't wear that to church. I'll watch that in my home, but I would never show that at church. Sacred-secular split, same thing. What I do inside church, it's got to be holy. What I do over there at work, I can fudge the numbers. I could steal a little. I could, you know, cheat. I can lie. But at church, I'll never, never do that. So Paul says, I made you feel guilty in my first letter. And he says, I kind of regretted it, but now I don't. Like, I felt bad for making you feel bad, but now that I see you changing, I don't feel bad anymore. You ever experience that tension? It's like, oh man, I got to tell them something. I got to bring correction to them. I got to bring rebuke to them. Oh, they're going to feel bad and I'm going to feel bad and uh, just rather not. Then he goes on. He says, as it is, in other words, as it is now, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas the worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. So now they're ready to change. This is the earnestness. They felt bad and now they'll change. They felt the weight of conviction. They felt the weight of grief. They felt the weight of guilt and now they're going to change. And Paul says, I felt bad because you felt bad, but now I see how excited you are to change and grow, so now I'm excited. So godly grief produces repentance. That's a good thing. So if you feel the weight of God on you and you're saying, wait a minute, I feel the weight to change, and so I'm going to make some changes in my life. I can, I can do this. I'm worthy. I'm valuable. I'm loved. I'm cared for. And so I'm going to make some changes in my life. That's godly grief. That's guilt. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I felt bad and I just kept digging the hole. I felt bad so I self-medicated and made things worse. I felt bad so I divorced my wife. I felt bad so I quit my job and now I don't have one. I felt bad so I self-destructed. Instead of I was convicted and I experienced guilt, but I knew I was loved, I knew I was cared for, I knew I was valuable, I knew I was worth something, and so I made changes in my life to move forward. Guilt or shame. So godly grief produces an eagerness to be genuinely innocent. To come before God and confess your sins and to be in with those that you're in your relationship with, to go to people that you've offended and wronged and said, I, I want to be innocent, I want to be clean, so I confess my sin before you and I ask that you would forgive me and I make a covenant with you to move forward and to grow because our relationship is worth it. Because God loves us and our relationship matters and you matter and I matter and so this, that which is destroying our lives needs to be removed and then you get excited about making change. Get excited about moving forward. Now, this passage of Scripture causes me to think that within Christianity, we sometimes get these really confused in the church. That sometimes when we're in this kind of setting, hearing this kind of message, and maybe you're thinking about something in your life right now that maybe shouldn't be there, and you start to feel shame. And you start to say, well, 
I'm just not very good, am I? I'm not, maybe I'm not worth God's love. Maybe I'm not worth people forgiving me. That's shame and has no place. You never need to sense that. You never need to fall into that trap that believes that you've made mistakes and that you have certain habits and hang-ups. Maybe you have some addictions. Maybe you're in bondage to something. You should never, and it is never from God that when you sense that weight for you to say, I'm just no good. Now, there's never a place for that. That's not from God. That's not from the Scriptures. You see, godly grief is not shame. The word, the word guilt, I believe I put the, did I give you that slide, Wes, the definition of guilt? It says that the fact of having committed a specified or implied offense or crime, that's from the Webster Dictionary. So the fact is, we, we did it. Whatever that is, I'm going to trip over that yet. Um, so if the Bible says thou shalt not lie, lie and you lied, you did it. You are guilty. And you can admit that. And you can come and say, and the Bible says I shouldn't have lied, but I did lie, and I come to you and confess my sin to you. I'm guilty of lying to you. Would you please forgive me and restore a relationship? I will work on rebuilding trust with you. And I understand that that'll take some time because I lied to you, and now you're not sure if you can trust me, and you don't know if the words coming out of my mouth next are going to be a lie either. So I admit that my guilt but I love you and I care for you and would you forgive me and can we move forward and can we work on restoring this because I'm guilty. See? Now shame would be, I lied to you, I am not worthy of, for, of your forgiveness, I'm not worthy of your grace, I'm not worthy of your mercy, you might as well just go ahead and leave because I'm just a liar. That's shame. And that's nowhere in the scriptures. That should be nowhere in the context of a church. Because the word shame means a painful feeling of humiliation or, dis and, or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior and a loss of respect or esteem. I'm no good. So what do we do in our culture today? We call shame guilt, we remove them both, and we don't want our kids to lose self-esteem so we never tell them they did anything wrong. And that's just nonsense. And now there's a lack of discipline. Now there's a lack of shaping. Now there's everybody gets a trophy. Now there's everybody's doing it right. Now it's everybody gets an A. No. In an attempt to remove shame, we need to remove shame and leave guilt in place because sometimes we're guilty. And our children aren't perfect. If, you ra if you're raising a teenager, they're lying. <laughs> And I used to tell teenagers, I know you're lying because your lips are moving. <laughs> and I had to refrain from busting out in laughter after with 17 years of teaching high school students when their parents would show up when I would discipline them and my kids. And they said, my kids said they didn't do it. And you believed them? <laughs> okay, now I know why your kid's such a... Anyway. So guilt focuses on offense, shame focuses, and may I add, devalues the offender. Because you're an amazing person created by God for good works in Jesus Christ, but yet sometimes you're guilty. But you're still in that same amazing person. The fact that you went out and did something and you're guilty doesn't change the fact that God created you for an amazing purpose. 
And you have amazing value because God created you. And so we then move to this next idea that when God convicts us of sin, He does not shame, but He reaffirms our identity as His children. Flip a few, few pages to the left from 2 Corinthians and you'll find John 16, 8. And if you can't flip there, just listen. We're just going to be there for one verse. It says this, And when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So part of the Holy Spirit's job is to convict me and to convict you when we've done something wrong. Part of the Holy Spirit's job is to come to you and say, Ah, that's going to destroy your life if you continue down that path. That's going to destroy relationships if you keep adding that. It's going to take you down a path that you don't want to go. The conviction of the Holy Spirit weighs heavy on us because God loves us. And it's part of the role of the Holy Spirit. This word convict in John chapter 16 and elsewhere in, in the New Testament means to convince you of the truth and to repuve, reprove you and to accuse you. So this word convict is a God's weight on you saying, you are guilty, and I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to convince you that you're guilty. But that's not shame. But that's not shame. And then we move into this other idea. Here's this quote that kind of helps us wrap this pretty good. It says, conviction causes us. Do we have that? Yes, we do. Conviction causes us to recognize a behavior that goes against a biblical teaching, moral standard, or Christ-like character that we have chosen to uphold. Conviction reaffirms our identity. So if you have the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, guess what you have? The Holy Spirit. So therefore, whose are you? God's. When I punish my children, I punish them because they're mine and I love them. And they stepped out of bounds and they had to be reorientated. <laughs> and sometimes that reorientation was quite this motion. Sorry if I bother you, but my kids got that treatment. Until I realized the boys didn't really give two hoots about that. You give them that treatment, they're like, yeah, that kind of hurt, but we're moving on now. Good to go. Seven-year-old Brant, you take away his hair gel, you have ended the world. You put my daughter Bailey in her room by herself, world ended. You start restricting privileges from my middle child, my oldest son Brock, the world has ceased to exist and now I'm miserable and I'll do anything, I'll repent of anything to get my stuff back and to get my freedom back. Discipline, because they're mine, because I love them. Same thing with God. If you feel conviction in your life, it's because God loves you and you're His. It's terrifying to live a life of sin and not feel guilty. There is something horribly, tragically wrong with a person spiritually and perhaps psychologically and mentally. If you can do wrong and not have a sense of guilt, we call those sociopaths. We call those in need of medical attention because they're probably going to harm a lot of people in a lot of ways because they have no sense of guilt and they just wreak havoc on our world. So it terrifies me when someone reads the Bible and comes and says, Pastor, I'd do that and I don't feel guilty. Uh-oh. Are you even God's 
child, are you in any relationship with God? Have you so distanced yourself from God that you no longer hear his voice? Paul calls that a hardened and burnt heart. Has your heart become so hard to the things of God that you no longer feel guilty? You just do everything that you normally do and it's just fine and dandy with you. Lie, cheat, manipulate, pride, selfishness. I don't care. That is a scary position to be in. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Just listen to this one. We're going to move through it fast and then wrap this up. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons or children. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for by or excuse me, nor be weary when he reproved when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises those son in whom he receives. So this idea, back to the beginning, God loves everyone. No one needs to change. Oh no, God loves everyone, and therefore he calls us all to change and grow up. So the goal then becomes this. Repent when guilty, but never lose your sense of value and significance as a human being or a child of God. That's where I really want each one of you to live and reside. Conviction of the Holy Spirit comes. You confess your sin. You change your mind. You repent of that. And you never, ever, ever question your value as a human being or your position as a child of God. Because that's shame. And guilt, yes. Shame, no. Go to that next slide for a second. Yes, I want to read this to you. Guilt is both an objective state and a pain and painful but potentially beneficial emotion that opens the possibility for, the, for repentance, a vital practice of life and faith. That is from, let me see your name. There we go. I changed pages. Um, I don't know what I did with my notes. But anyway, I need to wrap this up. Okay, so I'm going to give you one final challenge. Go to that last slide. Yeah. We as the church, here's our, here's our challenge as we quit, and we're going to pray. We as the church must continue to address sin without devaluing the sinner. Do you think we can do it? Because every time you and I call someone to repentance, they're going to say, stop shaming me. Not doing that. But I am going to, we need to continue to call each other to repentance. So if you're feeling guilt today, repent and change your mind. If you're feeling shame today, you need to reject that and come to God and help, ask, him, ask His help for, to restore you and to bring you back to confidence in yourself because you are valuable. You are never in a position where you should go away. You are never in a position where you should think of yourself as less than a beautiful creation of God ever.